a year of studying wisdom. I know we're a whole lot wiser. Hey, this summer, I'm excited about these summer amens. Ricardo Green is our uh, pastor to the Hispanic community over in Berclair. He's a wonderful, thoughtful pastor. He's also a professor, has been a professor uh, in seminary, and I know you'll enjoy hearing him. And then uh, Ronnie Stevens is going to be our preacher in residence here at Second Presbyterian in July, and he'll be taking the Amen Bible study in July. And the reason he's doing that is I'm going on my first ever sabbatical. The church is sending me out to pasture. <laughs> Not to pastor, but to pasture. Uh, so we're going we're gonna to practice retirement here for a couple months. I don't know if I can do this or not, but I'm sure I'm going to give it my best shot, and I'll come back and tell you about it and, and maybe be able to suggest a few things to you about how you need to get away. So uh, just pray for me that I don't, uh, I'm not so neurotic that I, I can't stay away, and, and uh, I'll be reading and writing and also doing a little traveling with my wife during part of that time, so I appreciate your prayers. So really, I, I won't be back, back in here for a number of Sundays in a row until really October. Uh, so uh, a combination of vacation and study leave and sabbatical, uh, I'm gone a lot. Uh, but then, of course, in uh, August, Richard Reeves, who is our church evangelist and church planter downtown, we're really seeking to see something get started downtown, and Richard's been there for a number of months, and he can tell us about that and how to deal with your house burning down and a whole lot of other things, uh, as well as how to evangelize people in Center City, Memphis. So I know you'll enjoy this this uh, summer. This next year, uh, we are going to undertake a study of the Magna Carta of Christian Liberty called the Book of Galatians. Uh, it's a very, very important book. First one that the Apostle Paul wrote. Uh, we haven't studied that in Amen before. We're going to take it up, not just because it was his first one, but it is truly a seminal book in the New Testament in terms of understanding the nature of what the Bible is and how to access it and what the nature of our salvation is as we look at how we are justified before God and the implications of that, and then to understand how we apply that in the work of the Holy Spirit in living a godly life. All those are in Galatians. Those are the three key things. Uh, I won't be teaching Amen until early October, and I haven't decided yet whether I'm going to let Skip Ryan, who's our preacher in residence in September, uh, take those first parts of Galatians. I may not want to give that away. So uh, we may ask Skip to do some other things uh, in September uh, amen, and then we'll start Galatians in October. We'll see. I'll, I'll outline it this summer, and, and we'll be ready to go in the fall. But that's what's ahead of us, uh, and those are uh, very important times. I trust you'll make a, a point to be here. Well, we have spent the year studying wisdom, and I hope it's been as good a year for you as it has been for me. The teacher is supposed to always get more out of it than anybody, and I, I trust I have. It's been a great study for me. But we've seen that the wisdom in, in the Old Testament really is in two categories. One is proverbial wisdom, uh, where truths are given us for practical living, primarily, of course, in the Proverbs itself, primarily by Solomon as he teaches his royal court, his sons, uh, how to be wise people. And we've been able to listen in on that royal court language and learn how to live practical lives, whether it's our friendships, our sex lives, uh, how we deal with our money, how we deal with our work, many, many other practical areas of life. And uh, we've seen that that covers about 95% of the cases in life where you apply good principles of truth to any situation and you'll find that it leads to a good outcome because we learned that wisdom is fundamentally applying the proper means to the right ends. 
So it's applying the right means to the right end. So you need to know what are the right ends and then what are the right means to apply to it. That's, that's daily wisdom. And the Proverbs help us in those things. And we gave ourselves to, to several months of study in Proverbs. Then we turn to what's called reflective wisdom. And this is the wisdom that covers the other 5% of the cases where we need wisdom for situations like this. Number one, how do you view God in the midst of terrible suffering? How does God justify himself, so to speak, uh, in the midst of the kinds of sufferings that, that you and I face? Is God still on the throne when those sufferings are taking place? So we turn to the book of Job, and there we learn some important things that when we're suffering, there are some things going on behind the scenes in the heavenly court of which we are not aware. And furthermore, we've seen that God has good intentions toward us when we are his children, that he does work all things together for our good. It just doesn't look like it in the moment because we don't have access to the heavenly courts. We don't know what his plan really is in detail. So in the moment, it looks like he's left us. He's abandoned us. He doesn't care for us. And, of course, that was Job's chief concern. He was concerned that God's favor had left him. But then we see, by the time we come to the end of Job, that not only did God have a specific plan for those sufferings, but that he restores his servants ultimately uh, to uh, their best interest. Well, then we turn to another big question in life, and that is, what about when you... You know, from a philosophical point of view, you, you just begin to understand how hollow life is. And specifically, what happens when you really look at life and you know that it's short and it ends in death? Doesn't that make everything ultimately meaningless? Well, for some people it does. And this is a deep question. And so we turn to Ecclesiastes, who says from the beginning of his book, meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless. Everything is completely meaningless. And he uses that word meaningless over and over again uh, throughout the book of Ecclesiastes because life is hollow and life is short. And we've really wrestled with this because, I mean, it's been the whole blooming book. He's been asking this question. And we get little snippets of wisdom about how to live life when life seems hollow and life is short. And we go ahead and apply those things to daily life. But we're still left with this big question. Uh, what about ultimate meaning in life? Does it really make any difference what I do? Well, we come to the end of this book, Ecclesiastes, and we'll see, yes, there is an ultimate answer for the ultimate question about death itself and the brevity of life and therefore the seeming hollowness of life and the meaning that uh, suffuses life we'll see that we do have an answer for that at the very conclusion of this book. But perhaps our most important lesson this past year was the one right before Christmas when we turned the pages into the New Testament. And we wanted to know what does the New Testament say about wisdom. And, of course, we discovered there is a New Testament Proverbs. It's called James. And James gives us some great wisdom for daily living. But especially when we turn to the Gospels. And we found that there was one there who incarnates wisdom. He puts flesh and bones on wisdom. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And we saw how in his ministry, you can see it toward the end of Matthew 13 after teaching the parables there, uh, seven parables in that one chapter. The people were saying, where does this man get this wisdom? 
Everyone understood in his words and in his deeds as well, his miracles, that this man was uniquely wise. Well, we see that he was indeed God incarnate. He is God incarnate. And we saw that he went about teaching wisdom. He is the Son of God. But we saw that if we would have wisdom, ultimately the only way to have wisdom is to be found in him because in him, says Paul in Colossians, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All the treasures of wisdom, all the treasures of knowledge are hidden in him. Therefore, if we're to be wise people, we can study textbooks all our lives. We can listen to wise people all our lives. But the only way you can really be inherently wise, intuitively wise yourself, is to be in Christ. Today is Ascension Day. It's 40 days after Easter. And on 40 days after Easter, you know that Jesus ascended into heaven, there to take a place at the right hand of the Father. And now he rules over heaven and earth. And now his wisdom is given as a gift to all those who ask. James says, you don't have wisdom because you don't ask. And we find there's one place to ask, is to ask in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to give us wisdom. What happens when we do so? Well, you can, see a, uh, you can see a foreshadowing of it in the Old Testament with Solomon, who gave us most of the wisdom literature in the Old Testament. Solomon, when, when he was enthroned, had people from all over the world come to Jerusalem simply to hear his proverbial wisdom. The Queen of Sheba, who was very, very wealthy and undoubtedly a wise woman herself, traveled many thousands of miles simply to hear Solomon in his court. And so you have the nations streaming to Solomon. Well, what about in our own day, in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ? The same is true. Jesus Christ is enthroned at the right hand of the Father. On Ascension Day, he took his rightful place. And what are we told is happening at the end of the day when Jesus comes back again in all of his glory? Once again, the nations stream to Jerusalem. They stream to the king's throne to see his face and to hear his wisdom. Jesus is the only one greater than Solomon. And so we found in that lesson before Christmas that the real key to all wisdom is to be found in Christ. And this morning, if you've not given your life to Christ or if you're not sure about it, let me just say, the way for you to be of most effect in this life and to have these ultimate questions really answered can only be found in Jesus Christ. Well, let's turn to the end, the conclusion of the matter. We're going to include verse 8. Some scholars say it really belongs in the epilogue, and we're, we're going to be looking at what's known as the epilogue. And there's a little bit of a debate among scholars, as we saw when we began our study in Ecclesiastes, as to whether there are two speakers here or one. If you take the two-speaker uh, theory, the main narrator takes the prologue in the first 11 verses of chapter 1 and these last verses, verses 8 through 14, and that's really what he's saying. Everything in between, he's quoting Koheleth, the, the, the gatherer, the preacher. And he's saying, this is what Koheleth says, but this is what I'm saying. That's the two-speaker theory. The one-speaker theory says that the speaker's arguing with himself that he introduces his own material and then he says, it seems to me on one hand, da-da-da-da-da-da, and he goes on for 12 chapters. And then he gets to the end of chapter 12 and he says, 
But hey, look, this is the conclusion of the matter. This is, this is the conclusion I draw. I'm not sure which one I believe. We'll probably lean toward the one speaker uh, idea where the speaker has ransacked the universe to try to get answers to these questions about the meaning of life. And he's done it under the sun. We've heard that phrase over and over again. So he's searched under the sun for all the answers to the questions about the hollowness and brevity of life. And he's exhausted himself trying to find an answer under the sun. And then he says, but here's the conclusion of the matter. We have to go above the sun to get the answer. Let's look at it. Verse 8. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, Koheleth. Everything is meaningless. Not only was the teacher wise, but also he imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. The words of the wise are like goads. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. Of making many books there is no end, and much study wearies the body. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Okay, we've come to the conclusion of the matter, and here it is. And when we are in Jesus Christ, this is the conclusion that we draw. That you cannot find wisdom ultimately under the sun. Here's what we say in this verse, verse 8. Wisdom without God is impossible. Wisdom without God is impossible. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. And if you try to devise a philosophy of life, if you try to just come up with all the cool sayings that you can come up with for leadership or how to make money or how to raise a family or anything, you just pile it all up, ultimately it's meaningless. It cannot stand the, the onslaught of death. Death empties everything of its meaning. Life is so short. What's the purpose of it all? You can't argue with that unless you have a solution for death. That's the reason we take such great joy today in the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has conquered death. He has taken our flesh right into the Godhead itself. He is now at the right hand of the Father wearing our flesh, our glorified flesh. We are fully represented there. He has destroyed death. He has emptied the grave. Now we see beyond the sun and we see beyond this day and we see beyond our earthly life and now life is chock full of meaning. So without God, wisdom is impossible. And that's the reason that Jesus said, here, here is the crux of all wisdom. The word crux means cross and here it is. It's the cross. The cross is the centerpiece of all wisdom. And Jesus says, of course, to the world, the cross is folly. It's anti-wisdom. It's the opposite of the answer to life's questions in the view of the world because it's either silly or it's weak or both, depending upon whether you're a Roman or, or a Jew or whether you look at it one way or another. It depends on what your 
perspective is as to how you're going to see that cross. But it's shameful to this world. It's not wise. But to those who know their God, to those who are saved by it, it is the wisdom of God and the power of God. And without that cross, you're not going to have wisdom to live life. That's what Jesus is saying. You either have it or you don't. And without it, wisdom is impossible because you're calling the ultimate wisdom ultimate foolishness. So ultimately, there's no answer for you. And the the nihilists, the existentialists are correct. They just simply commit suicide because there's no answer. But then notice as we turn to verses 9 through 12 that he speaks of the words of the teacher and he shows us that wisdom with God's word is possible. You can actually be a wise person if the Bible is your key source. And let's look at at why I say that. It seems to me this summarizes verses 9 through 12. First of all, if if you'll look at at verse 9, you'll see that he shows that the Bible imparts knowledge. He says, not only was the teacher wise, but also he imparted knowledge to the people. And uh, we see this so beautifully in Psalm 19 where David is speaking of how we know God. Uh, This, of course, is on page 821. And uh, David says about knowing God, he says, first of all, we know God through nature. The heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of His hands. But then when you get to verse 7, he talks about not just natural revelation, but special revelation. And look what he says about, about the Word of God written. He says in verse 7, The law of the Lord is perfect. Some people don't like the word inerrant. They think it's a word that's alien to the Scriptures itself. It's too scientific, too 20th century to describe the Bible. Well, okay, you don't like inerrant. How about perfect? The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. This this reads almost like a love song. David is passionately in love with the law of God. Now, what part of the Bible did David have in 10th century B.C.? Well, he had Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and probably Joshua. That's what he's going so wild about. He didn't have the Psalms that he was writing. He didn't have the Proverbs. Uh, He didn't have the prophets. He didn't have the Gospels. He didn't have the Epistles. didn't have the book of Revelation. But look at that language. And look at what we've got. The Bible imparts knowledge. David knew that. It gave radiance and light uh, to his eyes and to his heart. And it does the same with us today. We're not going to have real knowledge of ultimate things apart from the Bible. Secondly, notice in in verse uh, 9 that the Bible is clear. And this is a very important reality for us today, as I'll mention in a moment. But we're told here, he pondered and searched out 
and set in order many proverbs. He set them in order. There's a logical thought process in the Bible. And the Bible itself is clear. Uh, This is where the Bible is being attacked today. Rather than debating whether it's true or it's not true or whether it's errant or inerrant, people say, well, whatever it is, you can't really understand it. Well, if you claim you can't really understand the Bible, then it doesn't matter if it's true or not because you can't understand it. And it'd be just your guess about what it means contrary to my guess about what it means, and therefore it has no authority in your life. So the clarity of the Bible, or what we call the perspicuity of the Bible, is now being attacked. But you'll notice so many places in the Scriptures where where God shows us clearly the Bible is understandable. In Psalm 119, the psalmist says, It's a lamp to my feet. It's a light to my path. It really does enlighten my way. It shows me how to go. Certainly it's clear. You remember in Nehemiah, when the people were standing out in the rain, listening to the Word of God, the priests went throughout the crowd to make the text clear to them so that they could understand it. And then, of course, in Deuteronomy 30, Moses says, this is not so high up that you can't reach it and so low that you can't dig down and get it. It's right beside you, the Word of God. He's saying to them, it's understandable. It's clear to a child. And then, you know, of course, in Jesus' life, in Luke 24, after His resurrection, He's on the road with Cleopas, and he, he teaches them the Scriptures. He doesn't say, look, this is my body, before they even know who He is. He's teaching them the Scriptures. And then at the very end of Luke, He's explaining everything in the Old Testament concerning Himself. He's teaching the Christocentric nature of the Old Testament before He ascends. He's showing that it's clear, that it can be understood, that it can be applied to life. The Apostle Paul and Peter, they don't waste their time. They teach the people clearly. Now, obviously, there are many things in the Bible difficult to understand. Second Peter tells us that. He said, in fact, he says, especially our brother Paul. <laughs> so we know there are some things that require a lot of study, and there are some things that still leave us a little baffled. But in his general directions, general teachings, and how to live life and how to be saved, these things are very clear in the Bible. That's what the Bible claims for itself and what those who study it find to be true. But isn't it interesting that in the very areas uh, ethically where we want to do what we want to do, whether it's divorce when we want to divorce, be whatever, uh, you know, have sex with either gender that we want to, uh, decide uh, all that we want to about males' roles and female roles in marriage and church, all these things that are highly uh, controversial, we begin to look at the Bible and say you can't understand what it means in those areas. It's amazing. You just watch it. Every time there's a controversy and people are a little embarrassed about taking a position that's contrary to the dominant view in society, they'll say about the Bible, it's really not that clear. So it's interesting how we get real confused when the heat's on. And the Bible is a lot clearer than we wish sometimes. And it's our sin that normally uh, moves us to obfuscate the Bible, to muddy up the Bible and to say that we can't understand it. Our problem is not that we don't understand it. Our problem is that we don't obey it. So the Bible is clear. And that's what, that's what the, is being said here in Ecclesiastes, that he took these Proverbs and he put them in order so we could understand them. Now, thirdly, the Bible is true. Uh, look what he, he says in verse 10. The teacher searched to find just the right words and what he wrote was upright and true. And I've shown some verses here uh, that ought to be consulted. 
You know, Matthew 5.18, for example, you get the very view of Jesus Christ toward His Old Testament. You know, when, when you uh, tend to want to say that this, this uh, word or that word may not be uh, accurate or may not be the Word of God, just watch out. Uh, Jesus Himself says, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And of course, in his high priestly prayer, Jesus says, Sanctify them by the truth. Thy word is truth, he says to his Father. So Jesus is affirming that the truth is not only himself, which he says in other places, but it's the written word of God. And you find Peter saying in Second Peter 1 that this Bible was given to us as the prophets were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And I'm afraid that so often we're looking every other place but the Bible. One time there was a pastor who was stopped by a security guard and the pastor had his briefcase and the security guard says, what's in there? And the pastor said, a plumb line, a measuring rod, a hammer, bread, water, a crystal ball, a compass, a mirror, a sword, an anvil, and my title to my inheritance. Security guard says, you can't get all that in there. He says, well, take a look for yourself. And the guy opened it and, of course, pulled out the Bible. There it was. Uh, it's all those things. So let the Bible be the Bible. It is the source of truth. You know, Daniel Webster was probably uh, the greatest orator uh, of course, he was, he was pre-Obama, but probably the greatest orator uh, in our nation's history. You know, he was a congressman from Massachusetts, a senator. He was a secretary of state for three different administrations. And, of course, you know the great Webster-Clay debates and uh, his, his fame as an orator in the, in the Senate. But what you may not know so much about him was his deep faith in Christ and on one occasion, uh, Daniel Webster said, pointing to the Bible, he said, this is the book. I've read the Bible through many times and now make it a practice to read it through once every year. It is a book of all others for lawyers as well as divines. And I pity the man who cannot find in it a rich supply of thought and of rules for conduct. It fits man for life. It prepares him for death. And he went on to say, he went on to critique some of the preaching of his day. And I want you to listen to this. This is 150 years ago, 160 years ago. But listen carefully to the critique and see if it doesn't apply to today. Webster goes on to say, Many of the ministers of the present day take their text from St. Paul and preach from the newspapers. When they do so, I prefer to enjoy my own thoughts rather than to listen. <laughs> I want my pastor to come to me in the spirit of the gospel saying, you are mortal. Your probation is brief. Your work must be done speedily. You are immortal too. You are hastening to the bar of God. The judge standeth at the door. When I am thus admonished, I have no disposition to muse or to sleep. Webster's saying, we've got this great Bible, and everybody's turning to everything else. And I wish that you preachers would stick to your knitting. 
I wish you preachers would just preach the Bible and give its central message. How necessary that is for our own day. We have some preachers who think that in order to be relevant, in order to keep you awake, that they've got to tell a whole bunch of stories and give topical sermons based on how to be a nice guy and never give up and, and also love Jesus rather than dealing with the text of the Bible and proclaiming it in a logical way and applying it to life. If you aspire to be a preacher, I want you to know that you'll, you know it's hard work. I want you to know it's probably harder than you think. To take a text of the Bible and to outline that text and also proclaim it in a way that is relevant to everyday living. But that is the task of the Sunday school teacher and the preacher. So let's get on with our business. It's easier to pick up an article out of the paper and take 20 minutes of your time talking about it. But it's more important that you deal with the ultimate truths that are in the sacred scriptures. It is the word of God. It is the truth. And it is the means by which people's lives are transformed. It's the gospel in the word of God. The Bible is true. That's what we're being taught again here. Notice, fourthly, the Bible is useful. How so? Well, well, sometimes it's painfully useful. <laughs> Look what he says in verse 11. The words of the wise are like goads. You know what a goad is? It's something that sticks out of a piece of wood and you hit an ox with it to get him going in the right direction. That's the reason Jesus said to the Apostle Paul, why are you kicking against the goads? Why are you destroying yourself? You're, you know, in rebelling against God. The word has goads in it. And furthermore, they're like firmly embedded nails. That is, things get nailed down. They'll, they'll, uh, they'll stick to you, but they'll goad you. And we need goading. And you'll find this, you know, that Joshua uh, is told by Moses uh, before Joshua takes over Israel and leads them into the promised land. Uh, Moses says to him uh, in Joshua 1, verses 8 and 9, Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. And then see what he says. Then you will be prosperous and successful. So do not let this word of, uh, of God depart from your mouth. Don't let the law slip away from you. Then you'll be prosperous and successful. You mean, oh, good, then I'll make a lot of money? Depends on how you define prosperous and successful. Success is honoring God. Success is walking with Him. Being prosperous is having His favor upon you. Sometimes it means making a lot of money. Sometimes it means suffering what Job suffered. I don't know. But it means prosperity and success as the Bible defines it. And that's what we want. So let the law of God be in your, uh, in your heart and on your lips. You get the same sort of thing in Psalm 1, the first psalm in the Psalter, uh, where we are told, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. And look at the results of it. He is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. So he doesn't grow old. He's growing younger all the time. He's more vital all the time because he's meditating upon the Word of God. Do you not only read the Bible but meditate upon it? We've removed the Bible from public life, including the pulpit. And it is no mystery why we are struggling in our society as we are. 
when you remove the Word of God from your conscience and you remove it from every place where you could be reminded of it, don't be surprised when your team, your society starts to spiral downwards. It's a direct connection because the Bible is true and the Bible is useful. And Paul says, look, it's good for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness. And there's nothing else you can teach with, nothing else you can rebuke with, nothing else you can correct with, nothing else you can train with that will build a godly man or a godly woman like the Bible. So let's all become as expert in it as we can. Notice, fifthly, that the Bible is pastoral. He says it's given by one shepherd. You notice the NIV capitalizes the S on shepherd. Of course, in Hebrew, they're not capitalized, so we don't know whether he's talking about God there. NIV assumes he is talking about God. It could be the one shepherd Solomon, or he could be talking about Moses, but probably it is God, and it's divinely given. But notice that he uses the word shepherd. The Bible is not just a rule book. It's a love manual, and it's given to you by someone who deeply loves you and cares for you. It's given by your Father. It's given by your Savior. It's given by the one who died for you. It's given by one who desires the absolute best for you. It's a pastoral word. Even the thundering judgments that are in the Bible are to warn you so you don't run into trouble. So we're warned by a loving father. What father lets his child go out in the street and doesn't warn him or even discipline him? But God warns us and disciplines us in the Bible. He is our pastor. He's our shepherd. My sheep, says Jesus, hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. So it's sheep who are reading this Bible. It's sheep who are following the shepherd who gave the Bible. It's, it's a life response to read the Bible and to apply it. It's following the shepherd when you read that Bible. You're hearing his voice talking to you personally. It's an individual relationship with God. That's what's happening when you read the Bible. It's not like any other text. It is a personal text. It is a person speaking to you by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Bible is pastoral. And notice, notice sixthly, very importantly, the Bible is sufficient. He says in verse 12, Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them, in addition to these words. Of making many books there is no end, and much study wearies the body. Well, anybody who's been to school can tell us about that, that it can weary the body to read all these books. But I think what... What uh, is being said here by Koheleth is that you can read a lot of books. There are manuscripts and books available in Solomon's day. And Solomon himself read those books. We know he did because, as we mentioned, when you look in the Proverbs, you find Egyptian Proverbs, you find Akkadian Proverbs, you find all kinds of Proverbs from around the world. Solomon was a well-read man. And it's a good thing for you to be well-read too. I think a, a Christian man ought to be reading broadly in a lot of different disciplines and ought to be staying up with things because, after all, if we're the wise people on the face of the earth, how are you going to apply wisdom to everyday life if you don't stay in touch with current events, if you don't know what's going on? So we ought to be well-read people. But this is the point that's being made here. After all of your reading, come back to the Bible. You know, sometimes uh, guys will be having trouble in their marriages and they'll just read a whole lot of books about marriage. I tell you, my, my shelves are full of books about marriage. I don't know how many books. I bet I have 100 books on marriage. But you know what the most important book on marriage is? It's right here in front of us. I find if I am reading this book 
If I am going back to Christ, I'm going back to the cross, I'm going back to the resurrection, going back to the ascension, going back to His coming again, and I've got these things in my mind, and I go back to His being with me and present with me, if I'm walking in His presence, you know what? That has a much stronger discipline in my life than any cool insight I ever got from a marriage book. And I've got a bunch of good insights from marriage books. I'm not against it. I am against, and I think He's against, displacing the Word of God with the words of men. Just be very careful in your workplace. Of course you want to be fluent about accounting and finance and management and strategy and all these things. But you know what helps you more than anything else? Is if you're a man of this book. It's amazing. If you will become a student of this book, you will develop intuitions, not only in relationships, but in the way in which you do your daily work. It's amazing. You'll have a new framework to begin to figure things out. You'll start to figure things out intuitively instead of going back to your old business school formulas and applying it here and doing, you know, applying this principle and this principle and this principle. All of a sudden, you're doing it out of your own heart and mind. Some of this comes with age. But I just notice more and more as I study the Bible, it, you know, I, I just make intuitive decisions because my intuitions are being trained. And that's what you want in the Bible. The Bible is sufficient it's not the Bible plus anything else. If you want ultimate truth that answers the questions about whether life has meaning in it or not and how to live life, you'll find it in the Bible. So sometimes we're, we get too fired up about all kinds of ancillary resources about how to deal with this problem or this problem or that problem. And what it really gets back down to is what Daniel Webster said. If you just get through your Bible every year, you're going to be in really good shape. I imagine the thing that made him an effective senator and Secretary of State more than anything else, and I'm, I'm almost guaranteed he, could, he would say this. It was the Bible reading that he did. It was being a student of the Word of God, and that's the way it is for you no matter what your situation in life is. So we find that wisdom without God is impossible because no matter how smart you are, no matter how well-read you are, your ultimate framework is contrary to the gospel, which is the summation of all the wisdom and knowledge in the universe. But if you have the Bible, it's possible. But it's not guaranteed. Because you can have a lot of Bible knowledge and it never takes root. You know, there was a graduate of a seminary in Georgia, not the state of Georgia here, but the nation Georgia. And this, this boy had memorized the entire Bible. And he graduated early from seminary in Georgia. His name was Yosef Jugashvili. And his last name today we know as Joseph Stalin. He knew the Bible intimately. And he was the butcher of the Ukraine. He killed millions of people for political reasons. And he, knew, he had the Bible memorized. So you can study the Bible and it doesn't change your life. That's possible. And there, I'm telling you what, religion departments in our universities are full of folks like that. I'm talking about Bible scholars whose lives have not been converted, who don't really know the Lord personally, for whom the Bible is not a pastoral voice. It's a fascinating ancient text that is the source book for a world religion. So it's possible to know your Bible intellectually and not have wisdom. So what is needed? 
That's exactly what we come to in Ecclesiastes. Thirdly, wisdom with the fear of God is certain. That's how you guarantee wisdom. It's in a personal, reverent relationship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Here is how you get wisdom. After all these months, preacher, what took you so long? Well, this book has lots of words in it. It's taken us a long time. Well, what we must do, first of all, fear God. What we must do, A, number one, fear God. You see this throughout Deuteronomy. Moses is saying to the people over and over again, fear God, keep His commandments, fear God, fear God, reverence Him. You see it in the last book of the Old Testament. The real problem there was that the people didn't fear God. They were bringing Him these blemished sacrifices. They were offering puny worship. They weren't disciplining themselves because they weren't treating Him, God, like they would their king. God says, what king would accept this from you? He would shut the palace doors and not even let you in the, in the palace. And so he says, I say to you, shut the temple doors. I don't want any more of your trashy sacrifices. It, it, it bring, and then he says, bring the tithes in the storehouse. Why are you withholding tithes? It's because you don't revere me. It's just real simple. You don't fear God. Simple answer. Why are you not loving your wife as you ought? Simple answer. You don't fear God. Why are you living your sex life the way you want to live it? Simple answer. You don't fear God. Why are you cheating on your income taxes? Simple answer. You don't fear God. So he says, number one, fear God, reverence Him, treat Him as He is. He's a king. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of all lords. He made the universe and He's ruling over it. What idiot would disrespect Him? So wisdom is... First of all, starting out with a reverent behavior toward God, and once you start there, you're going to end with wisdom. So it's, it's cyclical in some sense. Wisdom leads to the fear of God, and the fear of God leads to wisdom. It's integrally related. And we've seen that in previous studies that in, in the Proverbs, we have a couple of times where it's clearly said, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You just can't get anywhere until you bow down before God and acknowledge Him as Lord. The Psalms say it. And certainly in Ecclesiastes, we've already had it. Chapter 4, I believe it was. And then he says, fear God, and number two, keep His commandments. This is so simple. You say, well, I don't understand everything. I don't understand why I have to die, and I don't understand why it has to be so painful. I don't understand why I can't make more money. I don't understand why I lost my job, and I don't understand why our economy is so bad, and I don't understand why my wife doesn't like me. I don't understand why my children don't come home every, every once in a while, and I don't understand why. Hey, keep His commandments. Just keep His commandments. Fear God. Keep His commandments. Job didn't understand everything anyway. Fear God. Keep His commandments. Gohelth doesn't understand everything. Why life is so short. Why it's so chaotic. Why it doesn't make sense. Fear God. Keep His commandments. Sometimes we think the most important decisions in life are the ones that are going to bring us the most pleasure or have the most risk of bringing us displeasure, like marrying the wrong person. That's scary, isn't it? And so that's a big decision, who you marry, isn't it? Or what job you're going to take or what major you're going to have in college or 
what city you're going to live in or what business you're going to invest in. There's a big, you could you invest a million dollars, you could lose it all. There's a big decision. And so we, we have all these big decisions we've got to make. Here is what's being said. You really have two big decisions. Number one, fear God. And number two, keep his commandments. Those are the big decisions you have to make. And nothing else can compare to that. Everything else is a small decision. Who you marry, small decision. What business you go into, small decision. What house you buy, small decision. What car you drive, tiny decision. Here's a big decision. Are you going to fear God or not? Are you going to keep His commandments or not? Jesus said, you're not my servants. You're my friends. If you keep my commandments. He's basically defining a friend. A friend is one who hears His voice and believes in it. And His voice is the one of the chief shepherd. And if you're going to be his friend, you will take him as he is. And he is a king. So your friend is the king. And you will keep his commandments. And that is the nature of your relationship. That he's the boss and you're taking, you're taking orders. And that's exactly what Ecclesiastes is saying. Let's boil it down. Here is your... Here's the... You know, the, the Ecclesiastes says that it's our whole duty. But... Ecclesiastes just says, this is the whole of man. This is what it means to be a man. Fear God. Keep His commandments. There's the essence of manhood. Let's move on to that because we want to look in verse 14 why we must do this, why we must fear God and keep His commandments. First of all, our wholeness. And you see that in Micah 6, 8. But, but here in this text, he's simply saying, uh, fear God and keep His commandments for this is the whole, and the word duty is added, it's the whole of man. It's everything. It's not part of the deal. It's not icing on the cake. Folks, it's the cake, the icing, the baker. It's everything. All wrapped up into one. You get a similar statement in Micah 6, 8. This is page 1475. When Micah says, He has showed you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. It's the whole of man. You know, the, what it means to be a man, we, we've defined it in so many different ways. People have written books on manhood and what it means. Here it is. Fear God and keep His commandments. That's what it means to be a man. It's the wholeness of man. And your wholeness will be experienced. You will be an integrated human being when you bow down before Him as King, you are following His commandments, you're taking His rubric for life, and you're putting it into effect in your own life. There's being a man. And that is wisdom. And so it's our wholeness. But notice in verse 14 that it's God's judgment. And ultimately, wisdom comes from fearing God because He is going to judge all the earth. Isn't this simple? It's walking in life with a clear awareness of God judging every little thing every big thing in the past, the present, and the future. It's walking through life knowing that this one who judges everything to whom we are accountable is the one who's sending his son, who ascended into heaven, who will come back in the same way that he left, and he will come back with glory, and he will judge the entire world, including everything that we've ever said. And look at it here, including every hidden thing, and he will judge whether it is good or whether it is evil. We are living in the presence and before the face 
of one who makes moral judgments and he makes them perfectly. And we're aware of that. That's what makes a wise man. That's what leads to the fear of God. That's what leads to obedience is knowing that we're walking in his presence. Now, gentlemen, this is what Jesus Christ accomplished. He accomplished this, that we can live in the presence of such a judge without fear of death and without fear of exclusion because all of the wrath of God for all of our sins has fallen upon Jesus Christ and there is no more wrath for us to experience by, by way of punishment. So Jesus Christ accomplished for us that we can draw very close, intimate, with this judge, knowing that we will not be condemned. That's what the cross accomplished for us. That is the reason it's the wisdom of God. is because it removed all fear of death. Now we simply fear Him. But we fear it without cowering before Him, afraid that He's going to destroy us. And the only way you can get intimate with God is if the fear of death has been removed. Now you can be intimate with Him. Now you can walk in His presence. Now you can celebrate His judgeship. Now you can revel in His distinctions between good and evil. Now you can look forward to His coming again and judging the earth because you will be vindicated there. You say, well, I don't know if I deserve that. Well, you don't. That's the point. That Jesus Christ has taken care of that. He's taken undeserving men and given them the place of deserving men as though they deserved it. So now we can walk in confidence with our Father who's judging the entire earth and we have been vindicated. We have been justified by the work of Jesus Christ. This is the reason the work on the cross is absolutely essential to wisdom. You can't get close to wisdom. You can't draw near to wisdom. You can't be intimate with wisdom unless someone's made a way for you because wisdom would destroy you because wisdom destroys sinners. But Jesus Christ has made it possible for us to draw near now and be the wise people on the face of the earth. We know we're undeserving. We walk through life knowing that we're undeserving. We'll get to heaven. We're not going to stop singing Amazing Grace when we get to heaven. We still are undeserving in heaven. We know we're undeserving. That's the reason we're so happy. (laughs) Look at me. (laughs) I didn't deserve this. I deserve the opposite. This is amazing. He's the judge of all the earth. And I live before his face. I live in fear of him. But it's not fear of death. It's fear of Him. I revere Him. I don't even fear the devil. I fear Him so that I have no other fears. And He's my Father. This is the source and the heart of true wisdom. Daniel Webster one day was asked, what is the greatest thought that ever went through your mind? (laughs) He said, this is off the cuff. He said, My accountability to God. Just think about that. We are the men who know we're accountable. We know that God gave His Son that we wouldn't have to pay the price for all those sins that are accounted for. They were accounted for. They're still accounted for. Jesus Christ paid for every one of them. But we know that still, having been justified, we're accountable to Him. And that it still matters to Him how we live. And so now we go back through Ecclesiastes. And these things that don't seem to make any difference. Meaningless, meaningless. Life is meaningless. Completely meaningless. 
under the sun. True. For someone who doesn't know the Savior, I suppose all life truly is meaningless. It's hollow and it's brief. But for those of us who know the Lord, and we know that we're accountable to Him, and we know that He paid the price for that accountability, everything is meaningful. Everything, every small decision, every word spoken, every thought entertained in our minds, everything is meaningful because we're accountable to God. That's what Koheleth is saying. Take all the foolishness that people offer you in this life. Boil it down. Fear God. Keep His commandments. This is the whole of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it's good or evil. This is wisdom. And you'll find Jesus Christ not only providing the way of wisdom for us, but perfectly displaying it in the way that He lived before us. As they said of Him, where did this man get all this wisdom? And you know what? I find men in this room who have been walking with Jesus. And I find on several occasions people saying around you, where did that guy get all that wisdom? And you know where you got it. You got it from that Savior who loved you and gave himself for you and made a way for you to have an intimate relationship with our Father in heaven. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word which shows us the way. We thank you for your spirit who comes into our life and changes us that we may believe that word and fear you and thereby receive the wisdom of God. Help us today and every day to walk in the fear of God and to keep your commandments because it is our whole duty and because we are walking before your face, living in your presence. Lord Jesus, we celebrate your ascension today. You've gone to the right hand of your Father there to rule over all the earth, there to intercede for us, there to make a place for us, and from there to come in ultimate judgment at the end. We thank you that you've made known already what will happen at that judgment. That your sons, your brothers, whom you've saved, will be justified on that day. And we will be awestruck at the power and the wisdom of Almighty God. May we live in these realities in a world that would otherwise be meaningless, completely meaningless but which now has become meaningful in every way. We praise you and adore you and we would serve you. In Jesus' name, amen.